Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today's a very special day for me as it's episode 100, and it's a very special day for everyone at Untold Stories. I really wanted to take this moment and to, to thank you guys, my listeners and my viewers, for listening to me and watching me for the past 100 episodes. Um, I wasn't sure if the show would take off and I wasn't sure if you know people would listen uh, and if people were really interested in, in a show like this, like an untold stories you know, of the crypto world. I, I thought the show was important and it's grown and changed so much over the past year or so. And I thought it's important because the culture and ideology of our industry and our space and our economy and our world and our friend groups, that culture and ideology really is what drove and continues to drive a lot of people to get involved in the space, to to buy Bitcoin, to buy crypto, to, you know, to to, uh, just be active and to understand like why we're here in the first place. That like culture and those stories and that drive is why I started this show in the first place. But I can't be selfish and I really have to thank the people who were uh, involved in getting this to, to where it is today. Of course, my wife, Courtney, who's been with me uh, since uh, almost for the past 10 years, since the early days, since I first got into Bitcoin in 2011. Uh, as my girlfriend, she was right at my side when I got arrested and went to prison. She was in every court case, every court hearing, and never missed one week of visitation. And for her, uh, for I have to give a special thanks for her. Um, of course, for, you know, for uh, to all my listeners, to you guys, thank you, and really to to Blockworks Group and to the team, Jason and Reed and Julie and Gina and everyone at at Blockworks Group, because without them, this show really, really wouldn't be here today. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you guys like the story of why I started the show. I was actually going through a huge amount of emotional trauma during the uh, huge Winklevoss litigation that I was dealing with a few years ago. And it's really difficult to uh, stand up and defend yourself. And at the same time, I was going through this huge emotional uh, trauma and my hands were idle. And I was seeing a therapist a few days a week. And he said to me, Charlie, you need to do something that will um, keep your, keep your, your mind busy, to keep your way from uh, from dealing, micromanaging your lawyers and being on top of them every day and to try to to tell them what to do. And so this podcast was actually his idea. He's like, why don't you turn on a microphone and just start talking about the early days of Bitcoin? Because in my sessions, that's all you do. I would literally just tell my therapist stories of, of the early days of Bitcoin and crypto. And so he said, start a show and do something. So I did. And and there's our recording. And I sent it to Jason and the guys at Blockwork Troops and, and they loved it. And And starting the show, and you guys loved it. Starting the show was a, was a big deal. Um, I should talk about today's episode, of course. Today's episode with Daniel Scott uh, is awesome. He's so cool. We talked about a lot of stories. And he's the CEO of Coin Corner that's been around for like a very long time. Uh, he really, really is a Bitcoin OG. Got involved very early on. And we talked about really what's going on in England, what's going on in Europe, and the world uh, in today in the, in the COVID and crypto era. Um, and I'm not doing it justice. The show is great. But I'm really here to, in this intro. I I wanted to just take this moment and like make episode 100 special by thanking all the people. So now that I've done that and I've told you guys why I started the show, um, I know you're all eager to get started. So without further ado, I'm a little emotional and 
really, really, really excited to present uh, episode 100 of Untold Stories. I never thought that I'd get to this point. I never thought we'd be here today. And so um, enjoy the show. I'm Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by BitPay. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. Danny Scott, welcome to the show. How's it going? Very good. Thank you, Charlie. Um, thank you for having me on. Um, I appreciate the, uh, the, the invite. Um, yeah, very big fan of your, your, your podcast anyway. Uh, love thank what you. you're doing with that. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, you, so, you know, you helped me out with research a little bit here, which is cool. Um, sometimes people will send me like some research. Sometimes I'll have to do the work on my own. Um, and then I have a little bit of a content team here. And so we're looking at the research and we're looking at everything. I'm like, this guy is extremely proud of the fact that he's not taking investment to the <laughs> point when, when you've gotten like VC offers and angel offers going back 10 years, you've noted it in your research. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely, that's, um, I guess something as a company, uh, myself and the co-founders as well, have kind of prided ourselves on a little bit. Um, I think over the years we we came very very close to taking uh, VC investment. Um, it always uh, fell through for one reason or another, um, and a big part of that eventually was that we we just didn't um, require it, and we felt that it'd be um, better for uh, long term objective, I guess, as a company um, to be independent and not have the um, the VC back in there trying to not call the shots as such, but you know they they do have the, the pull and the power when they need to. Um, well, so that's yeah, what was, ends up happening. Completely, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was nice. We we did um, we did briefly take some investment, um, which was angel investment from a, just an individual, and um, that was a high net worth individual, local um, local guy. So um, not a, a VC esque. So that was all good, uh, and he's effectively been a, a silent partner throughout, which has been nice, um, and let us run the business the way we see fit, which is good. In um, hope, sorry. In the typical like world. Um... In the typical world, like, you know, taking VC money or angel investment, it's a normal thing, right? Um, but in our industry, uh, you recognized early on, and I didn't, and I want to kind of go, I want to talk like parallel tracks here. You recognized early on that bootstrapping and trying to run the business, you know, on your own is the best way forward, where there are a lot of early companies like myself, where we focus so much on raising money that we lost that original message. So I was talking to, so you, myself included, I was talking to um, Cedric Dahl, who was a founder of Buttercoin. I don't know if you remember, Buttercoin was one of the first, it was pre-Coinbase. Yep. Yep. And yeah. I, was, I said, what's the deal? He's like, I just was spending so much time raising money. I should have just borrowed more from my family and built the business. And um, I don't know if you know Yifu Guo, who actually was one of the first, he invented the ASIC. So nowadays, so... When we went from GPU mining to uh, FPGA and then ASIC started coming out, the first ASIC that was actually working in a mining pool, like in the United States physically, um, well, anywhere in the world at that point, there was two of them. I had one and Mike Hearn had one. And Yifu literally, because he invented it, he brought it to my house. You know, we picked it up at the airport and he told me, do not take investment. He warned me against taking money from Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. He warned me against taking money from from even Roger Veer, everyone. And um, for better or for worse, what had happened was he ended up getting screwed. Also, like the one he sat on my office every day working on his laptop. Don't take money. Don't take money. Don't take money. 
And he took money. And so I don't know this full story because I was in jail. But Canaan, uh, Canaan, Canaan or, or I don't know how to pronounce the big mining company bought, you know, bought uh, Avalon ASIC, which was his company. And he got completely pushed out. He got completely screwed out, like complete, like literally lost tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think to um, exactly what you're saying there, you do get we hear a lot of horror stories, especially from the tech industry side um, of people, entrepreneurs taking investment early days as well. Um, and sometimes it's a necessary evil to grow. And I think that is uh, the case with a lot of companies. Um, and you see that and they eventually do get pushed out or they, they end up with such um, such an insignificant stake in the company. It becomes a point of, you know, a lot of them do go on to leave the company and go on to do different ventures. Well, um, they don't know, like, because you're pioneering an industry. So these guys with money, like if they would be doing it themselves almost. So the the good investors, like the Barry Silbertson ones, when he was investing early on and stuff like that, and there were a few others, like Matt Mellon who passed away, they were very like, give you money and don't, they don't want any involvement. Even in the early days with Roger, I would have to beg him to help me with stuff. And so much so that uh, the funny tidbit was that I didn't want to hire Eric Voorhees as my second employee, but Roger like forced him on me and even said that I'll pay his, sa this was what the investor said. If you say no, I will pay his salary for you. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I, we experienced the same things talking to the VCs. Um, they, a lot of them are great guys. Don't get me wrong. They, they know what they're doing in their, their sector. Um, and they are great guys, a lot of them. Um, but I think what we, we did when we got some more open conversations with a couple of them, they've themselves said the same things, you know, don't take money unless you really, really have to. Um, and it's yeah. kind of a last resort almost as what it is. But I think early days, um, for myself, I've always been very into the startup scene and the tech sort of tech entrepreneur side. Um, and I've kind of read the horror stories. Um, and I've always seen, I guess, originally was the way of thinking that the only way to make a successful company was to go and raise, you know, hundreds of millions um, right at the start. And, you know, you spend lots of money and you don't create a business model that uh, creates a revenue stream until yeah. further down the line. Um, you saw that with Twitter and Facebook and the likes. And, you know, they're the, the big headline companies that you do see. Um, in the media. Um, but I think over time that became um, more apparent that it's not ne necessary to do that. Um, it almost became a necessary even for ourselves in the very sort of early days because we, you know, we started up with self-funding from um, founders and then eventually uh, it's a small, very small angel investment from a local um, high net worth. And then after that point, we were backwards and forwards on whether we should raise money, talking to the VCs, as I mentioned, yeah. there, some of them were saying, you know, don't take money unless you really have to. And that always sat with us, uh, with myself and the co-founders of, you know, this is our company, our baby a little bit, you, you kind of treat it as, and it's, you don't want somebody else to come in and start calling the shots on something that you've envisioned in a different direction. Um, well, especially because you're envisioning a different direction for the industry, not just for, for your company. Um, and very much so, like, I feel like you don't even know what you were doing and you have to figure it out. Cause I, I know I did. I mean, you started this company over six years ago, coin corner. So congratulations on, you know, like continuing to be part of that, uh, integral infrastructure. And you're also contributing to Bitcoin, Bitcoin core. I know that, uh, four of your team members are, are actively. So thank you for that, for like giving back, um, to the community, but you got your start, uh, trying and failing, trying to throw shit at the wall to see what sticks in early days. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you like kind of how that all got started, why, what were you were building and why? And also I wanted to, I can, I could remind you of this question, but what was fundraising and banking like uh, for Bitcoin companies um, 
like during 2013, 2014 in the UK? Because I could answer in the US. But, yep. but I'll remind you of that question. First, uh, okay. tell us like your first, you know, your your early years in, in Bitcoin. <laughs> um, Did you like my lamp, by the way? I, I love it, yeah. <laughs> when I talk to I'm, Bitcoin I'm, Cash people, I keep it on green. That's a joke. <laughs> I don't talk to Bitcoin Cash. I'm just joking. <laughs> No, I talked to everyone. <laughs> I did have. I, I was going to have Amari uh, Dentalnix, but he he rescheduled last minute. But I really want to have him on the show because I met him in Mexico one time, and I was like, "Dude, you're really smart. You you know, I don't agree with you on things, but mm-hmm. you're you're smart. I'd like to talk to you and have you on the show. I don't agree with you on most things, but it doesn't matter. I cannot. I don't agree with most people on a lot of things. So it's all good. Yeah, there's lot. <laughs> there's lots of people in the space that you know very switched on, but as you say, there you don't always necessarily agree with every opinion, and it's yeah. just. It's the way it is, and it's the way that one of the, the sort of um, beautiful things about Bitcoin. You know, you don't need to agree with everything, and not everybody agrees. Even the guys working on Bitcoin, you know, don't always agree, and that's it's part of the process. Um, True so story. It's, it's the nature. She's great. Um, sorry, jumping back to the um, original question. Um, what was that again? <laughs> I do that. All my producers are like, Charlie. I'm like, so I asked someone the other day, did you like that show? Oh, my wife. I was like, did you like that episode? And she said, yeah. But you asked him a really good question, and then you interrupted him again. And I said, "Damn it!" I still, but I used to do it a lot worse. But I, I write down the questions now. So the first two questions were: I want to know um, the the little side projects that you were starting in the early days. Your mining, your yep. your your crypto by post, the little tidbits that you were doing. Your software company, your garage, all your explorations to get started, and then to where you are today. I kind of want to know that whole story arc. And then the second question, I'm not going to ask you now because I, I wrote it down. <laughs> cool. Just going to distract you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So um, early days, um, myself and one of our co-founders, uh, we're both um, software developers by trade. So very much techie into that side of things. Um, I'd heard a little bit about Bitcoin um, going back to sort of 2009 time, um, which was at, while I was at university. And one of my tutors sort of brought up um, the uh, Byzantine generals problem. Um, so came off the back of that, went away, did a little bit of research, came across Bitcoin, kind of ignored it as everybody typically yeah. does the first time, um, moved on, uh, finished my degree and went into the real world and kind of ignored it again for the next year or so. Um, coming back into then 2011, um, we was myself, one of the co-founders, both working at a um, online tech startup. Um, so we was getting our experience from the development side and the, the whole um, sort of tech entrepreneur uh, side of things in the startup company, which was absolutely great, great experience from that. Um, and then off the back of that, um, we Bitcoin popped up a couple of times to introduce it into the company a couple of times. Um, we did never actually got through. You know, we were um, two software developers within the company trying to um, bring suggestions forward to help the company drive forwards. And this was you know two thousand and eleven. Um, sort of time period. So uh, Bitcoin was relatively unknown and uh, managers and, and founders of the company at the time weren't interested. So it kind of got brushed off and, and ignored a little bit. Um, we eventually then, um, coming into 2011-12, we started our own uh, software company um, and we went to co-founders garage um, and we ended up starting a, a typical tech company startup uh, in a garage, which was, to be, to be honest, great fun. Um, we had the freedom to kind of work on projects he wanted to work on. Um, we got a couple of contracts with uh, some fairly large companies in the UK, um, some local companies here in the Alaman, um, and we it allowed us to as well have that spare time, that free time to to delve into other 
Uh, oh, are you in the Isle of Man right now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, my yeah. my good friend Simon Dixon is over there too. Yeah, Simon's there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. You guys have a great community. Um, yeah, it's it's not as big as it. I, I think I'll 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 touch um, briefly. Uh, I was after, there once after this question. Did you what? When did you come across? Um, back okay. So back in uh, 2013, I met the uh, uh, the I met I was in Macau and I met the the chief of the Isle of Man gambling commission or gaming commission or whatever because it was a gaming conference. Yeah, I guess Isle of Man was trying to attract more uh, gaming companies to be based out of Isle of Man. And this was, I was talking about Bitcoin and we ended up meeting and a bunch of us flew over there very short for a few days just to hang out for a little bit. But we were very impressed, uh, except for the weather and the food. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's exactly that. The weather's terrible today. <laughs> but it is an um, island, which is cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great place. Um, it's a lovely little place. It's nice and quiet, um, but it's it does have its, its benefits. I think it's a great business community here, which is what I found. I'm not from here, so I'm from back in the UK, but um, coming across here, you, you see the difference in the business community and the opportunities here. Even though it's a small island, it does have quite the yeah, global reach, which is good. Um, so yeah, we was set up in the garage, starting a software company, and um, we... Uh, Flicks back to Bitcoin again. I think it popped up in the news at that sort of time period again. Maybe it was hitting, could have been hitting the $10 region. I can't quite remember um, the exact figures, but it popped up in the news. We started talking about it again. Um, and we thought, okay, you know, let's get involved now finally. I think I'd, um, I'd previously over the years downloaded the the wallet um, a number of times and still had it on the old um, laptops yeah. where I downloaded it, ran it, never done anything with it. You know how many old wallet.dat files <laughs> I've rescanned over the years and rescanned just in case? Yeah. Let me download I've, that blockchain one more time. <laughs> um, but I've, I, I will tell you one thing. So there's this guy, I have to give him a shout out. There's this guy, Dave's Wallet Recovery Services. Do you remember him? He's been around I, forever. Yes, I do. Is he pop up on Reddit? I think originally he's always uh, on Reddit. I've yeah. never met him. I haven't even spoken on the phone with him, but he's just been around for so long. And one yeah. time I had a wallet, my friend had passed away and my friend, actually, my friend worked uh, for Morgan Stanley left, passed away in 2015 or something. Um, maybe God, God rest his soul. Great guy. Great Bitcoiner, Jake Donnell. Uh, his, his, uh, he left his family Bitcoin, but there was no inheritance. There was nothing. The password is completely forgotten. It was a blockchain.info wallet. And Dave was actually able to recover it based on like different conversations with everyone that Jake knew. It's, it's hard to explain. Like we figured okay. out. It was great. So cool. That'd be a good story in itself. Yeah, I got to <laughs> get him nice on the show. <laughs> That'd be nice to hear how he, how he went about that. Yeah, definitely. But but yeah, you're in, you're in the Isle of Man and there's a... It, it, is it nice being a part of, a, I guess... A community where you can access all your local politicians and things like that. Yeah, that, that that's a, one of the big big bonuses, I think. Here, um, as I mentioned, there the business community here is great, and the access to the government here, um, the access to uh, it's, government obviously is a massive piece. The financial services story, the gaming commission, um, all that side of things, alongside with all the businesses. You know, we do have like your, your KPMG and and PwC and things like that, which are global companies, but they do have um, offices and hubs here. Uh, and it gives great access to all sorts of, of people uh, and companies. And because it's a small community as well, and a small island, there's uh, we're on 90,000 people, I think, on the island at the minute, um, which is tiny. Um, but, you know, the, the people you do get to meet and see and, and, you know, you walk down to the coffee shop and you can bump into people that, you know, the um, head at KPMG, for example, and, you know, you get to talk to them. So it's it's a great opportunity to um, network and to, to effectively start a business as well. 
um, which is, again, reason I think we got to where we were today um, was massively beneficial being in the Isle of Man, um, as Coin Corner I'm talking about. So um, tell me, tell us um, what Coin Corner does and, and how has that evolved over time? Originally, so Coin Corner, uh, Bitcoin exchange is, is the best way to describe it. Um, I think what we originally did um, back in the days when we was in the, the garage and we began mining, playing around with things, and we then thought, you know, we were tr- actually trying to buy Bitcoin originally um, in the UK, and it was very, very difficult. Um, I think we eventually, um, I think the first place I bought from was Bitbargain, um, which is a UK one that's been around for, I think, since 2011, maybe 12. Um, they've been around for a long time, uh, very quiet of recent, I'm not quite sure. Um, what they're still up to at the minute. Um, but yeah, we, we eventually managed to buy from them, but it was still very difficult. Yeah. So while we were mining Bitcoin, we thought, you know, we're mining this Bitcoin here, you know, should we be selling this to people and making it a simpler onboarding process and a simpler on-ramp effectively? Um, so we tried out a few methods um, and we tried crypto by post, as you mentioned at the start there. What um, was that? So that was um, absolutely dreadful idea. Now looking at it, <laughs> And thinking about it, but yeah. at, the t- at the time, you know, we were brand new into Bitcoin. It wasn't, you know, private keys, key, that side of things, you know, was not really, um, it was on the radar, obviously, but not into the depth of today's um, environment. Um, so at the time we were, the Bitcoin we were mining, we were effectively wanting to sell to people, but we couldn't get a credit card processor that would process payments because it was just digital products they'd never heard of and they didn't understand it. And how could you prove that you've delivered it to the person and yeah. so many different things. So we said, well, why not sell you know, cryptobypost.com, which we got the domain for. Um, and the idea was we actually put the, uh, the Bitcoin we've mined onto a USB stick, which was a nice branded Bitcoin USB stick. Um, and we sent that out in the post so we could prove we physically oh, delivered that's cool. products. Um, so we got around, we tried to get around the credit card processor, allowing us to, to work with them by giving them something physical. Now, when you think that, okay, we're sending them out this Bitcoin wallet that file on a USB stick that goes out to the customer with some Bitcoin on, technically, you know, it's not um, a great privacy uh, or a great security um, approach to selling Bitcoin, really, because, you know, we could have took a copy and so on. We weren't going to, of course, but um, anybody could, could believe that. Um, so we realized it didn't quite work um, in the way we intended. Um, so we kind of moved. Eventually, we, we spoke to a couple of local banking solutions here and a couple of local um, credit card processors here that we could um, find a better solution uh, for sell it for effectively creating a Bitcoin exchange. Um, and we eventually then did create Coin Corner um, in sort of, uh, June, July 2014. Um, and we did launch straight away with um, GBP Banking, which was... Um, I think one of the first in the UK, um, and we we effectively come up with a solution from an Alaman company over here who um, acted as a, an intermediary between ourselves and the banks, um, and we actually had a bank account with Lloyd's and HSBC through that at the time. Um, but then, obviously, that um, as soon as we started to gain any form of traction and get attention, um, that fell straight onto the radar of um, HSBC and to Lloyd's, who both eventually pulled the solution, um, which then led us into, you know, we're back to square one with yeah. banking and, and we had to go start from scratch again. Um, so yeah, UK banking from, I know that was one of your What's it like getting a bank account shut down in, in the UK? Um, how does it, how does it, it work? It was, um, from a company perspective, it was... It sucks. It, it was, yeah. <laughs> Short answer, yeah, sucks. Um, but yeah, it was a... Um, 
it was a panic almost like, you know, you, you started this company, you're three, four months in and yeah. things seem to be going well. And all of a sudden your banking gets pulled. And it's something that you don't think, I think starting any other business and other businesses and other industries don't think of that sort of, it becomes a bank is just something that it's a, you know, something on the side. You don't really think about it too much. It's just, it's part of the business. Um, but then in this industry, a banking relationship is a competitive advantage. Um, and that really was a competitive advantage at the time. Um, so yeah, it was, it was not great. We were going to kind of panic, um, trying to find a different bank, different solution. Um, search around the world, which we did. And, uh, you know, we ended up having to bank where a lot of people did in sort of uh, Eastern Europe areas and other places. So you, I think that's why uh, companies like yours were more successful, where in the U.S. um, we didn't have that option. If you were shut down by like a bank in the U.S., um, you can go to another state or whatever, but you couldn't really go to another country in EU to do, and you, Mm -hmm. you had that ability to do that. Yeah, I guess I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't realize that from the U.S. perspective. So, um, okay. That's... Well, because the whole point of having a U.S. bank account is to be part of the U.S. banking system for the patchwork that it is. A Coinbase that has a U.S. bank account has an advantage over a U.S.-based Bitcoin exchange that doesn't have a U.S. bank account, just because of how quickly it can get money, you know, fiat in and out, yep. and for regulations and stuff like that. So I didn't have that ability. I was running around from. Like bank to bank, I would get a letter and it would give me 30 days. Sometimes one bank gave me 60 days. And then I knew that I had the countdown. I literally keep like a spreadsheet of how much time I had left. And then you'd just be running from bank to bank. <laughs> yeah. The average lifespan of a bank account was 90 days for that like two, three year period. It was the worst. Oh, yeah. No, it's crazy, isn't it? It's that, you know, we've, we've been through the same. I think I've lost track but of for how what, though? banks. That's, I look back and I say, at the time, and you, I wonder if you do this too. It's like, we hustled, we worked our asses off. It was a thankless job. We weren't making much money. In fact, we were spending our parents' money. They didn't have other jobs. We didn't, there was no value to Bitcoin in the future. There were no altcoins. Yep. What were we doing this for? What motivated us? I, I look back and I say, what in God's name made me be comfortable running around New York City, opening up bank account after bank account, you know, running compliance out of my parents' basement, uh, doing millions of dollars in volume, it just the immense risk that yep. I took on where I just said, I don't give a shit. I'll figure it out later. So what regular, like, yeah. <sighs> fucking, <No. laughs> this is stupid. No, I, I'm honestly exactly the same. The experience, what I love about um, I, your podcast, especially, is you get to hear other people's stories about exactly what you're talking about there. You get to hear the struggles they went through and the struggles, you know, it, it, I can draw parallels with that massively from, you know, we've done that from the UK side, but you've got exactly the same issues in the US and, and we've gone through them same struggles. Um, the first probably three to four years of this company was probably the hardest Um, But I think the fact that there were struggles going on in the UK is what helped motivate me because here I am dealing with stuff. And I talked to my friend, Mark Lamb, who, you know, from CoinFloor and, and Mark is dealing with the same type of stuff over in the UK. So it's like, um, and a lot of other people too, that I was talking to, um, there was Intersango, which one of the first, uh, I'm talking to that guy, uh, Amir and Patrick, and they're also, Amir is like an anarchist living in a in a squad house somewhere in, in, in Lebanon or Spain or so. I don't even know where he is. I mean, just, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And it's just, it's great. As you say that to be able to draw that parallel between 
a global yeah. issue and not just a local issue. Um, when do you think that you had to become like an adult in this industry? Did you ever like <laughs> have that moment that you were about to give a talk and you had to like dress up nice and you're like, okay, now this is real. <laughs> I'm still waiting for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think um, the, I, I guess the VCs a little bit, the banks, um, they, a lot of the time wouldn't give you the time of day anyway. So you didn't get the opportunity. Um, but the, the, the VCs were probably the more, um, okay, put a nice shirt on, put some, um, something smart on and, and go into the meeting with them. Um, and that was again, a necessary evil as such. Um, but outside of that, I think, um, we've, again, because we haven't took the VC money and we've been able to run independently, we can run the business as we see fit. And even though, you know, we take everything very seriously uh, and we've had to for six years, um, but, um, just to get through and survive, but, um, we treat everything at the same time as, you know, this has to be an enjoyable place for everybody to work. It needs to be enjoyable for us to, to run this business. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're seeing some sort of benefit from this. So it's a, we try and treat it as a relaxed environment. We're very relaxed, as you can tell, t-shirt and, and yeah. jeans usual. Um, it's about as smart as I ever get. Um, I'm more of a, a t-shirt or hoodie guy. So, um, yeah, very much, uh, luckily Same. not got to the, the stage yet where I'm having to wear suits every day. Um, which <laughs> I know I don't even wear shoes, um, which is why I've not been able to enjoy mountain socks. <laughs> which is which is awesome, by the way. Um, why did you guys? You. Uh, that came out of left field. Uh, that was just a. Um, it was just a little bit of a random one. I think it was more of a. Uh, we were looking for different ways to educate people on the industry and the sector, and, and you know, we're we're a Bitcoin exchange amongst you know another hundred Bitcoin exchanges. So you know, how do you differentiate yourselves? You can bring out new products and um, new features and so on. But we also have always took the approach of trying to educate people at a sort of lower ground level. Um, we put on local talks where we've um, tried to help educate people on just what Bitcoin is and just the basics. Um, and we've done that for quite a few years. Um, so we thought, you know, what's a, a fun and friendly way? And um, we was looking at, a, at how other people in the industry were doing it. And I know um, you had the likes of uh, Samsung with his caps and yeah. um, you had various people um, bringing out certain products that were kind of fun and friendly, but were not really anything to do with the industry. Um, so we thought, you know, what can we have? What does everybody wear? And I was going to say everybody wears socks, but yourself, as you say. <laughs> no, there's like, <laughs> me and CZ are the only ones that don't wear socks. <laughs> can you, can you make a flip-flop for us? <laughs> Maybe we could try. <laughs> That'd well, be a good one. Okay, come on. This is so cool. This is the new BitPay card that I have in my hand, and I'm so excited to be finally having the new one that just came out. Now, guys, I've been using the BitPay card since 2016. Yeah, you heard that right. Way before I started Untold Stories, way before BitPay became a sponsor of mine, I've been using this card, and it literally became a way for me to have a bank account uh, for many, many years, as, as a lot of people in crypto need banking, need better banking. The BitPay card is chock full of the coolest features. It's got contactless pay, uh, better rates and limits, no fees to convert from Bitcoin right onto the card, added in chip security. I mean, it's sexy. It looks good, unlike other cards. It's so easy to get. Just download the BitPay app on your phone, click the card icon, and you can do it right there. If you use the promo code CharlieJune20, your card is free. Remember, CharlieJune20. 
It's in the show notes. You can get a free card. So literally, just from listening to my show today, and make sure you actually listen, you could get a free card just by entering that code. So download the BitPay app, get the coolest card on the market, the best card on the market. I've been using it for over four years now. I know there are so many cards out there, but the BitPay brand is the oldest and longest running Bitcoin company in the world. I mean, that's who issues this card. This is the card you want to have. Remember, Charlie, June 20, download the BitPay app on iOS or Android to sign up for the new card. You're going to freaking love it. No, what, so what was the um, what was the blockchain play that VCs would want you to do going back like as early as like 2014, 2015? Yeah, they were... Um, <laughs> like inter- agnostic? It, it, was, it was interesting um, is the best way to, to describe it. Um, we... The VCs, a couple of them, so for example, one we spoke to, um, they offered a fairly large investment for us at the time. um, And we kind of looked at being UK. I know you touched on actually just to come back to one of the original questions uh, you were saying about what's the difference between VCs in the UK to the US in our sector at the time. Um, The UK uh, VC space for for or appetite for Bitcoin was just non-existent. Um, There wasn't really, I know, I think CoinFloor did take some um, earlier funding uh, from Passion Capital, I think. Um, so they did take some form of VC funding early stages, but outside of that, it was very, very limited. Um, so when we ended up talking to these guys, they made the offer, but they made the offer with the stipulation of we needed to come up with a blockchain concept for another arm of their business. Um, so it was a uh, insurance arm, let's say. What does that mean? Um, that was the question I had to them. <laughs> Um, and I said, you know, what, what are you exactly looking for? Because they'd heard the blockchain buzz at this time and that was it. They, they wanted to invest in blockchain, but they couldn't find a company that was had a blockchain product. So the next best thing was a Bitcoin exchange that had the technology as such with inside it um, and had the expertise with inside it. So they were looking for um, a grab of skill sets to then bring in to create something for their business internally. Um, and we, we danced around a little bit with that for a, a short period of time. Um, and I did very bluntly sit there and, and say to a lot of these guys, you know, the, we don't have a blockchain concept. Um, you know, what are you expecting us to do? And it was like, you know, we just, just come up with one for us. <laughs> and we, I had, um, we was in London, we'd flown over to London for one of the, uh, meetings, um, with a quite a substantial, uh, venture capital company. Um, and sat down with one of their guys and he was talking through things and we was talking about coin corner and explaining everything. Uh, and he said, you know, well, what, what sort of block, blockchain concepts have you got? And said, we haven't really got any. So, you know, it's not something we're focusing on. We're focusing on Bitcoin and the exchange piece. Um, he was like, well, you know, we can't really make a, a move or a, a second yeah. step unless you've got a blockchain concept. So I turned around and said, you know, what are you expecting? Do you want that you just sitting there and waiting for a blockchain concept to come and knock on your door? And, and his answer was yes. This is exactly what he was looking for. He didn't know what it was or what it was fixing or anything. He didn't have a clue in terms of, um, what he wanted it to be. He just wanted a blockchain concept. Um, so it became very apparent, you know, we, we spoke to, um, 20, 30, 40 could have been even more VCs over that sort of year time period. And a lot of them, it was more of an education piece of, um, us educating them on what Bitcoin is and what blockchain is. And so sort of going around in circles, quite honestly with them, uh, painful experience, but it was one that was, I guess I, like you were saying earlier on, you know, you, you, you think, why am I doing this? Why have I spent all this time, this effort and, you know, yeah. gained nothing from it. 
um, I guess I treat that a little bit myself as it was a learning experience for me and for the team here. And we took, we could take that away and learn from that. And, you know, we're not going to go and do that roadshow again. Um, or hopefully not going to go and do that roadshow again. Um, we can quite happily continue as we are and not need to run off with blockchain concepts that nobody has a clue what they're actually trying to achieve or trying to prove. I think there'll be a resurgence of like, not resurgence, but uh, uh, Bitcoin only companies. Um, and I'll give you good data. Uh, Peter McCormick only, I don't know if he still does, but he only wanted to, last time I spoke to him, take sponsors on his show that were Bitcoin only. So I looked at it as a metric and we, we sat and talked one time and he said, it's really hard to get a show sponsored by Bitcoin only companies, you know, wherever. And I said, what does Bitcoin only mean? You know, what if you're a Bitcoin only company, but your board member sits on the board of Ripple? Like, what does that mean? You're Bitcoin only? You could be only Bitcoin, like buy and sell Bitcoin. Where is your line? So we talked about that for a little bit, but realistically, uh, that, that pie is growing. And I think you'll see like a lot of like, there was that whole, like, I don't know if you have it in the UK, but people here like, oh, I want to buy products that are made in the USA or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, 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 we, you guys, I mean, yeah we get the same. Yeah. Yeah. And same so yeah, I think you'll see like a resurgence in, in that Bitcoin or companies that have followed that. But at the same time, um, you know, in my kind of my voluntarist roots or libertarian or whatever, you know, where it's like, you know, the government should stay out of the boardroom and the bedroom um, at the same time. Uh, I kind of wonder how things will, will play out. I kind of wonder how our industry will play out and what the relationships will be between various companies, exchanges, um, miners, because that's changed. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like how we viewed miners in the early days was it more of like a, a different how we view miners today, how we view our infrastructure and Bitcoin companies back then. It's very different than how we view them today. Yep. Um, and that narrative has changed. So I kind of wonder what, it, what do you think it'll look like in five or 10 years? Like what will the, because I almost feel like Satoshi took a little bit of the, a uh, little bit of that whole checks and balances requirement where it's like, there's a, there's a socio, but also a economic incentive for all these parties to like always be working together as much as we fight, you know, companies, miners, users, holders, whatever. Yep. Um, do you think that balance will always be able to be maintained? Um, I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, um, if it's not, then, you know, that's a, a potential bigger issue. Obviously we saw back in the yeah. uh, 2017 period with Segwit 2X side of things. And, you know, that, that was, that was a, a perfect example a, a, of a good intention that ended up being completely taken over by, by the wrong type of people and ended up being yeah. bastardized into something that it wasn't. It's a shame. Yeah. yeah. It became a civil war almost between yeah. um, the two parties. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, we've already experienced that. Um, we've learned from that hopefully as an industry and as a sector um, and hopefully things, you know, so far since that, we've not really had anything of, of significance. Um, so I would hope going forwards, yes, it always becomes uh, everything works within a, with a balance or with um, I think, one of the typical uh, terms is trade-offs um, and within our industry. And that, that is effectively what, what will have to happen going forward. Um, I know people talk about there's only so, so many years, maybe say, you know, another five to 10 years at the most of where we can uh, effectively change the base layer. Um, and then after that, it starts to become much more difficult. The more parties that get involved, the more difficult it becomes to, to start or to continue. I'm surprised about how big Bitcoin is now that we've not, that the, you know, the base layer is not 
changed much. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I guess, one of the big pieces and the way I, I view it and agree with, um, the base layer has been a slow uh, development process, which is great. It's, it's needed to be that because of the product it is now. Um, so you can't, I know like you see some of the other coins yeah. is uh, move quick, uh, I can't remember the actual saying, move quick, break things fast. And, um, you know, that's what they do a lot of them, unfortunately. Um, but I think the, the approach from the Bitcoin perspective has been the correct one so far. It moves slower, um, but it's because the base layer is the key foundation and you can build you know, layer two and, and hopefully we'll see layer three, four, et cetera, on top of that in the, in the future. Um, and do they you, will become the new innovations and, and on top. Do of that. you feel that the regulations that, you know, you've been a part of crafting and now that are there, um, do you feel like they are fair to allow you to continue to try to experiment and play around and figure out what works? Cause some play like here, you can't really do that anymore. Especially no, in New York. Yeah. And yeah, the, the bit license in New York was, um, a little bit of a disaster, I guess, from, um, a company perspective and, and the Bitcoin sector. Um, from, I guess, Aleman UK, they are, um, the Aleman moved very quickly with our regulations. So we fell in 2015, I think it was now, um, under the financial services authority here in the Aleman. Um, but they put a very, I guess, light touch is the best way to call it, uh, in terms of overseeing us for AML and anti-terrorist finance inside. And, um, outside of that, they've kind of left us to continue to innovate and to grow as a company and to, you know, move forwards um, the way I guess we are driving the industry as well. Um, the UK have followed similar suit. The UK are a few years behind still, but they're now starting to introduce um, their, not necessarily licenses, but you now have to be registered with the FCA in the UK. Um, so they're, they're all catching up slowly and they're a little bit behind, um, say, for example, the US and the New York bit license. Um, but I think at the minute from this side of things, um, UK is definitely letting companies like ourselves continue to, to grow. Which direction that will then take, um, we'll have to wait and see. I know as regulation comes in, uh, we have a big um, e-gaming sector on the Aleman and uh, in the UK. So we start. We did see that over the years that have gone by, um, regulations got tighter and tighter and tighter. And um, it's become more difficult for these gaming companies to operate and to, um, I guess, grow as a company in any form. There still are a lot of them. There is, yeah, yeah. There's still a um, lot of them. The, that's a prime example, I think, of what we've seen of regulation clamping down and, and starting yeah. to, to stifle companies. The gaming um, regulation followed the the Bitcoin regulation. I feel like followed a lot of the gaming regulation, uh, especially when it comes to like compliance and things like that. They yeah. modeled a lot of it after, for better or for worse, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, yeah, it has um, very much. It, it can draw parallels on both. Um, we actually. Our head of compliance has actually come from um, e-gaming sector himself. So, oh, there you go. Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it fit perfectly into the company, um, the skill sets, and uh, just the, the processes, which is great. Um, so, yeah, definitely has it draws parallels really, really, really well. What do you spend most of your time on dealing with nowadays? You know, it's no more like getting shut down by bank accounts and regulations and things like that. Um, poor. What do we spend time on? Um. <laughs> Uh, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So who um, doesn't? So yeah. Um, you crypto, almost have to. It's work. You have to keep up with the industry and the, it moves, everything moves so quickly. You know, if you're not keeping up with Reddit and Twitter uh, in the communities there, you, you do fall behind. Um, so, you know, a big part of our, um, my particular one, um, 
role is keeping on top of the industry, what's going on in the sector. And a lot of the time is feeding that back to the team here and uh, making sure they all understand what's going on in, in certain areas. Um, but yeah, I think we've began to grow a little bit more of a co- as a company over the last couple of years. Um, we've grown at, I guess, a uh, slow and steady pace rather than um, sort of the usual VC raise 100 million and hire 500 people. And, um, you know, that could work really, really well or it could work really, really badly. Um, so growing with the industry rather than uh, growing ahead of the industry has been our focus, um, which is what we've done over the years. We've focused on just making sure we're not growing too quickly um, and we're not growing ahead of what the industry is capable what do you of mean? handling. So I guess... Can you be um, too, too early? I think, yeah, one of the perfect, I guess, example, um, and no disrespect to uh, the BitPay guys, um, but I know BitPay had um, you know, trouble scaling effectively because of the, the block size. Yeah. Um, and I know a big... Uh, I talk to them a lot. Yeah, they do. Yeah, their, their issue um, back in 2017 or 16, 17 time periods, you know, they wanted the bigger blocks because you know, it, was den- it was detrimental to their business model. Um, so their business model wasn't quite ready yet for the industry and the industry, well, sorry, the industry wasn't quite ready for their business model. Um, so that slowed without a doubt that slowed their growth down, um, from the payment gateway side of things. Um, so that's a, a good example, I guess, of growing ahead of the industry where the industry is not quite ready. Um, but you're trying to force the industry to move in a direction that it's just not ready for. If the block size debate happened now, how would it be different? Um, good question. Um, it's a very different industry that we are now than in 2015. And I almost wonder if the block size debate was prematurely debated and done. And I think that's what a lot of the Segway2x people were like, not to like just kick the can down the road because like, what's the point of dealing with it now when we're, our industry is not really ready for it yet. And this was the industry saying it, like, we're not ready. Yep. Let's grow. But... I, I'm really happy it didn't because it would have been a very bad precedent to send to do. And honestly, it could have been honestly, it could have been the end of Bitcoin as we know it if the if the block size was debated, uh, yeah. was raised. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I, I think the um if it was debated now, I guess um I don't know if it differed too much. I think people's views and opinions are still uh smaller blocks are necessary for the uh, the foundation, the base layer. Um and it's necessary from a decentralization perspective. Um, I know you, you do have some of the core devs which are always lobbying and always pushing for smaller blocks um, than the one meg. Uh, although, granted, we're not at one meg anymore. We're at a, a it's slightly, just Luke. It's just yeah, Luke. Just Luke. wants smaller blocks. I talk to him about it all the time. <laughs> I joke with him. Is, he uh, lives not far from me. He's like two hours north from here driving. That nice. Um, yeah, I saw him I not, not. I watched. Sorry? A, I actually watched a uh, one of his presentations a couple of weeks back on um, incre- uh, decreasing the the one meg size down to uh, I can't remember was that five or six hundred k whatever he wants it to. Um, but it's interesting, you know, his his point of view there is is a, a I guess a valid point um, to some extent. Um, and as I said at the start, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion in this industry, and, and none is no opinion is is right or wrong. Quite honestly, um, we. Eventually, we might see with hindsight which one's right, which one's wrong. But um, without that, it's it's impossible to say. Um, so yeah, I, I guess you probably will end up with the same scenario. Um, I think the way I see it is more um, this base layer that we, we talk of. It's it's there. It's no longer being built to um, innovate at a large scale as such. It's more there to 
all of the work and the, the hard work the core devs put into actually continuous work on Bitcoin Core is more to build efficiencies um, and to create, continue to innovate and create the efficiencies. It's never going to scale to um, you know 100 megabyte blocks in in any sense. Um, you know that's what the scaling perspective is. Well, everyone compares us to like Visa, so we need to do the yeah. same amount of, of as. V- but like, is that uh, is that the right model? So I guess that's where you. <laughs> this is what one of the, the my um, when people always ask me like you know what's Bitcoin and uh, my response is always it's different things to different people. Um, some people believe it's digital gold. Some people believe like you say it's a Visa payment rail. It's um, some people call it financial freedom and it's your own bank. Um, censorship resistant. But, so exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, there's, there's so many different, um, meanings behind what Bitcoin is to people. Um, but I think the, the scalability perspective from a visa, uh, competitive angle is more that, you know, we've got lightning network and you've got liquid that, you know, Blockstream pushing there and there is solutions coming. Um, but on the base layer, it's not necessarily needed to be that visa scale. And that's not what it's there for, in my opinion, personal opinion. Um, whether that's right or wrong, we'll, we'll see in the future. Um, so, yeah, I think Lightning is your um, visa scale uh, solution there for Bitcoin. Um, very early days still with Lightning, um, but it seems to be working. Uh, well, how do you see Lightning playing out? Because um, I ask a lot of Lightning developers, like, what is your end goal uh, for Lightning Network? Um, I'm not going to tell you my favorite answer because I kind of want to hear yours. <laughs> um, I guess the end goal for for Lightning is exactly what you're saying there. It's almost the um, the payments rail. It's the Visa rail. Um, you know, it can already scale to beyond what Visa is capable of. Um, so it's kind of there already. There's still lots of infrastructure. I'm not saying it's it's nowhere near perfect. And um, you'll get the likes of uh, Alex Bosworth, for example. He's quite yeah. um, outspoken on a, obviously he's one of the, the leads, uh, devs on the Lightning Network, but he is also, he doesn't see it as, you know, Lightning's the only way forwards and it's the best things in sliced bread. It's, you know, he looks at it from a view of what's the negative things, what's the things we still need to improve on. And he, he puts that out quite often with his tweets and things, you know, he will quite openly say, you know, we've got this to improve on, we've got this to improve on. And yeah. it shows that there is still a lot of work to do there. Um, but I think the eventual aim in my eyes would be, yeah, your visa scale um, payments rail, um, which is working and it's built. I'd on- love to see a, a Bitcoin sidechain work, uh, launch that works, that is has the security, if if not as secure. Because I like, I like personally, I like the concept of a sidechain. It's easier to swallow mm-hmm. than it, than Lightning Network is, and I love the Lightning Network, and I think that. The way it'll the way it'll play out is you'll see um, Lightning Network almost um, have a standard of how it's adopted on the Bitcoin main chain, and so what'll happen is all these wallets and the like will almost give you an option of how do you want to transact. And I think there's going to have to be marketing and content written to say like what's the difference between the two chains. But you'll have you know side chains, Lightning main chain, and that'll grow and that'll change and things will happen. But at the end of the day, what you may see happen is based on your preference, there could be multiple layers on top of Bitcoin that yeah. offer multiple speeds, multiple pros and cons. Like some may be faster for small amounts, but are less secure. And yeah. that's okay. And so what will happen is these wallets or the way you interface with your Bitcoin 
It'll almost be like you have multiple different ways to do it and you'll have the option or the wallet will will choose for you based on, you know, like you almost like Google map, which highway do you want to take to the next destination? There's a longer route, the shorter route. One's a much nicer paved road. One's a shittier road. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's very much my, um, I guess the way I would envision the, um, as you touched on there, like liquid, for example, is um, very good potentially for larger, there's the trade-offs in between in terms of, um, the trust aspects for for liquid, but the, the liquid piece, you know, is it larger yeah. payments between exchanges? Lightning is your smaller payments between um, peer to peer almost. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's definitely uh, the way I think I'm seeing it and envisioning it being built. Um, yeah, it's it's. Do you like competition? Well, well, what it inadvertently happened was, and this is why things played out was with with bigger block camps was that now everyone's working together on the one scaling idea, mm-hmm. but with the way Bitcoin ended up working out was now you have multiple parties competing still for the best scaling idea. And as we all know, you know, when we're in competition with each other, we work the hardest and we work the best. And so that's why the, okay. So I think what had happened was Bitcoin said, we're not going to decide what the best scaling is now. We're going to open up the ability for multiple different mechanisms for scaling to, to, to start to be developed. Big block camp said, no, we want it. We have the solution to scaling. It's bigger blocks. This is how it is now. And we're just going to do it across the board. That's so it was smarter scaling. Now what segwit two X was basically saying, we agree with Bitcoin being, uh, needs to scale the right way, but we need to kick the can down the road. Now, obviously that was a stupid idea, but I mean, no one really knew what the freak that we were doing back then either. So (laughs) I was just got a jail. (laughs) <laughs> I still don't think anyone knows what they're doing today. So, you know, this is <laughs> yeah, all, true story adventure. Um, but yeah, no, same, same views. I think there effectively, yeah, I think there's, um, uh, it's the, now the innovation and the, comp- like you say, in the competition of the different scaling solutions that are coming up there, you know, they're needed, they're required. A lot of people are working on, on lightning. Um, it's like a majority and predominantly, but, um, there is like liquid and there is side chains being created there for various other, uh, projects or other needs and requirements. Um, so yeah, I think it's just going to be an interesting next sort of five years, I, I would say, to see more scaling solutions coming out um, and what other things will eventually be built on top of even Lightning. Um, I loved um, uh, Juiced, I can't remember his, his surname now, but um, he has been working on Lightning for a while. And I don't know if you saw his uh, TLV, I think it was called, um, which was a Lightning-powered shop. Um, so it was an e-commerce shop. Oh, that's pretty cool. You could, it was effectively, uh, it was Lightning-powered to the extent of you go onto the website, you can look at a product. So you say, right, okay, I want that product. And you don't create an account or make a payment on the website or anything. You just see the product and you see the invoice. And then you'll sort of, you'd theoretically scan the invoice and you'd send the payment via Lightning Network but you would also attach your um, delivery address and all your details in the Lightning Network payment. So that would be in the invoice. So when they receive the invoice at their side, they can pull that down. It means that you know there's no uh, payment details being sent over the internet. There's no payment details being sent over uh, stored in a database or anything. There's no um, details of your personal name, your personal address being stored anywhere. It can just go via the Lightning Network and into an invoice at their side. Um, so it kind of, you know, that was a, a prototype so that cool. he, he, was, he was showing and he's, I think he's actually turned that off at the minute, which is a bit of a shame. Um, I'm not too sure if anybody else has, has jumped on it. Um, but he's always coming up with these concepts, um, where they're, they're using lightning to build something. So it's almost like you would class it as a layer three, let's say. Um, yeah. and we, we were one myself and, um, 
Zach, who's our tech lead here, we were uh, playing around with that when he first brought that out and we bought his stickers that he sold through that, that site. So it was nice to be one of the first ones to be using that as well and playing with it. And um, that was a, a great innovation again, on top of what we've already seen as the lightning network, people are already working on prototypes going on top of these things. And the idea is that it's, it's hard when people always talk about, you know, where, where do you see Bitcoin in five, 10 years, yeah. 20 years? It's such a difficult question. You know, it's like going back to the, the 1990s and saying, you know, where do you see the internet in 10, 20 years? Um, you just never imagined things like, you know, even smartphones. Smartphones weren't a thing until mid 2000s. I'll leave you off with this question, though. If I asked you in 2011 if you would be happy with where Bitcoin is right now, you know, if you could glimpse into the future, would you be happy with where we are now? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> I've never thought about that um, as a question or an answer. Um, I guess in some respects, uh, you would be happy that. Um, it's still survived. It's still here. Yeah, I was just going to um, say it's still is, here. Is, is good. <laughs> That's always a good thing. Um, but in other respects, you know, you would hope that um, it, it would have come along further and it'd be more integrated into online payments, for example, yeah. or it was integrated into more companies. Um, so maybe there's a bit of both. It could be seen as yes, it's it's you know it's survived and we've come this far. Uh, we have now scaling solutions in front of us um, and actively working. Um, we have a future going forwards with it. We have more of a, a roadmap, let's say, than we did 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, it was a little bit of fun that people were playing around with and trying to understand what it could do to the world. But um, it's slowly becoming, you know, even people more recently referring it to safe haven asset. Um, and obviously with the, the March crisis and crash yeah. uh, and the markets, you know, that's, it, it's proved its, its strength and it's worth there. Um, you know, it did drop down to $3,800, whatever it, it dropped to. Um, we're back up to just under 10,000 again, um, which is pretty much the price pre the drop. Um, and it's, you know, it survived against many people not believing it would. And it's still here. So it's, it's you know, in my eyes, yes, it's become a little bit of a safe haven asset. Um, For sure. And I think other people believe that or starting to believe yeah. that more and more now. Um, as long as you and I believe that, that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, founder and CEO of Coin Corner, Mount Socks, the best socks in the world. The times that I do have to wear shoes, I'm wearing Mount Socks. Thank you again. <laughs> Continue doing what you're doing. Thank you for supporting Bitcoin and for everything that you've been up to. And, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for having me on. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offert. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.